We're going to spend some time this morning just looking at this particular topic. I think it's interesting, it's exciting, it can give us encouragement for looking for that day to come when our Lord will return to the earth. And I'd like to make a start by just looking at one verse. It's the last verse that Brother Stephen read for us in Ezekiel chapter 38 and verse 17. And this gives us the, the foundation for what we're about to say. It's not one of the most um, well-known verses, I think, in Ezekiel chapter 38, but it will be useful for us to spend a little time going through this and looking at one or two other scriptures to, as I've said, establish a foundation for what we're about to say. So then, this is what it reads, Thus saith the Lord God, art thou he of whom I have spoken in old time by my servants the prophets of Israel, which prophesied in those days many years that I would bring thee against them. So let's just look at some aspects of that. So God is saying that he has spoken about this power of old time. And he's done it by his servants, the prophets of Israel. So that's more than one prophet. So we need to bear that in mind too. And they prophesied in those days many years that I would bring thee against them. So we're looking at something which they prophesied more than one prophet and some time ago from the times of Ezekiel. Now Ezekiel wrote in BC 600 approximately and so we're looking for some words of the prophets recorded in scripture that speak to us about this power um, earlier than 600 BC. And as, the, as we pick up the last part of this verse, that I would bring thee against them. And my suggestion is to you that, that the prophet spoke of this power in relation to both Judah and Israel. So let's just look now at a few passages before we, before we launch into some of the similarities that I think are clearly there between the ancient Assyrian power and how they behaved with modern-day Russia. So let's go, first of all, to the second book of Kings and chapter 17. This book, uh, this chapter in this book, um, is a summary, really, of the sins of, of Israel. And when we just want to pick a couple of verses up in chapter 17, and we look, uh, starting off in verse 21. God Rent, so 2 Kings 17, verse 21. God rent from, for he rent Israel from the house of David, and they made Jeroboam the son of Nebat king, and Jeroboam drave Israel from following the Lord, and he made them sin a great sin. So that was right at the very beginning of the division of the kingdom, and this is particularly dealing at the moment with the nation of Israel, the northern tribe. Verse 22, for the children of Israel walked in all the sins of Jeroboam, which he did. They departed not from them until the Lord removed Israel out of his sight, as he said, as he had said by all his servants, the prophets. So now we've got an amplification of what we read in Ezekiel. All his servants, the prophets, made reference to this. So was Israel carried away out of their own land to Assyria and to this day. And, of course, it then goes on to describe how the Assyrian policy was to take Israel and to take them away to different lands and to repopulate the country with, um, with people from other, other places. So I think we've got a picture that we're going to try to build up here. Now, let's go next to one of the prophets, and let's just see how God communicates his message to us. And we want to go to the book of Hosea the prophet, and we want to look at chapter 12. Because it's, it's interesting to establish how God uses prophecy, how he has used prophecy, and what we should be trying to look for when we come to consider the message that God has, has left on record, particularly for us in these last days. So in Isaiah chapter 12, and reading from verse 10, we'll just pick up this one verse, and we're going to see that there are three ways in which God says here that he communicates his message. 
So first of all, in, in verse 10, I have also spoken by the prophets. Now that's very simple and easy for us to understand. It's very straightforward. We come across time and time again, thus saith the Lord, thus saith God Almighty, and, and, and we read the message, and it's come from the prophets, and we can understand um, that it's come directly from God. He speaks through the prophets. And then the second method that he's, used, that he's talking about here is, and I have multiplied visions. And once again, we can easily recognize that God has used um, the, the process of, of giving men dreams, giving the prophets dreams, giving them visions, that they see things, and from what they see, they record what they see under inspiration, and, and they are there for us to, to look at, to think about, and to try to understand. And we know in the book of Revelation is a complete vision, the book of Daniel, there are many visions, and so on. But it also occurs in other places. For example, the book of Isaiah tells us the vision of Isaiah, the son of Amos, which he did see. And Amos, the prophet, sees visions too. So, so it's all through the, the prophets. And then there's this third method. And the third method is, and used similitudes by the ministry of the prophets. So this is the one we want to focus on primarily this morning, and used similitude. So what, what is that meaning? What's that trying to tell us? Well, it's interesting to consider the Hebrew word damar, which occurs a few times in Scripture, and we're going to go to a couple of places where we'll find it in, in a minute or two. And this, this word is going to inform us that it's a likeness. God uses events in history which are like things that will happen later. So let's just see how this word is used, and possibly the best place to go would be the Song of Solomon. So if we go to the Song of Solomon and chapter 1, and we're going to just pick up a few verses here. Now this is the, um, the bridegroom talking and he's talking about his bride and i believe this to be telling us about the the lord jesus christ and his bride um, and and in verse 9 he says i have compared thee chapter 1 verse 9 i have compared thee O my love to a company of horses in pharaoh's chariots and so we see a picture of a horse uh, dressed up as it were um, in its best uh, finest sort of uh, position in the chariot of Pharaoh and, and the bridegroom looks at his bride and says well in his finery that's, that's what you're like and the words I have compared thee is the Hebrew word damar so there's a similitude being presented for us and if we go to chapter 2 we'll see it again in verse 9 and this time it's the bride speaking and she sees her bridegroom, and she says in verse 9, My beloved is like a roe or a young heart. Behold, he standeth by our wall. And so she sees a, a, a picture of her husband-to-be, the, the groom, the Lord Jesus Christ, and she sees him like a roe or a young heart. And, and again, it's there in verse 17, Until the day break and the shadows flee away, turn, my beloved, and be thou like a roe or a young heart upon the mountains of Betha. So I think we can get an idea as to what this is. It's clearly Scripture telling us that we are to look in the historical events in Scripture for prophetic outcomes. And I think that's, that's a wonderful study for us to do, to look at what has been said in the way in which God records history that there are so many things there that point forward to things which are yet to happen and things which have happened later than the um, historical event that was recorded. So let's just look at one reference, and this is particularly now in relation to Assyria, and we'll find it in the book of Isaiah in chapter 10, because this word damar crops up again. And it crops up again, interestingly, in relation to the Assyrian. So we're getting to our, our topic now. We're trying to set this foundation. 
and we're getting to our topic. And so in verse 5, Isaiah, who is prophesying a uh, hundred years or so before Ezekiel, remember what Ezekiel said, spoken of old time by my servants the prophets, so was I Hosea prophesying earlier. And, and so we read in verse 5, O Assyrian, the rod of mine anger and the staff in their hand is mine indignation. I will send him against an hypocritical nation, and against the people of my wrath will I give him a charge to take the spoil. That's interesting, isn't it? Because that's a little phrase that crops up in Ezekiel 38, which we know very well. And to take the prey and to tread them down like the mire of the streets. So God was using the Assyrians to punish his people Israel because of their sin. That's well known amongst us and well understood. Verse 7 then says, Howbeit he meaneth not so, neither doth his heart think so, but it is in his heart to destroy and cut off nations, not a few. So, so the Assyrian is unaware, completely and utterly unaware, that he is the instrument of God's judgments upon Israel. What he's doing is he's going down into Israel to plunder, to make their wealth his wealth, to make their lands his lands, to take their people captive. That's his purpose. That's what the Assyrian is doing. He doesn't think that he's working on behalf of God here. He has a mo motive for doing what he's doing, and God has a motive also. The word meaneth is interesting because that's the same Hebrew word damar. So not only is he not recognizing that he's the instrument of God's power here, but he's also unaware completely that he's being used in Scripture as a similitude. That what he is doing, how he's behaving, is going to reflect in later years the way in which Russia is behaving in the latter days. And in particular... We're interested in the way Russia is behaving towards God's people. So we'll keep that, and that will come out right at the very end. So what we want to try to do is to build up now a, a, a picture of some similarities between Assyria of old and Russia of the modern day. And we will see, I believe, some interesting facts coming out, and we will see a justification for our views in, in prophecy relating to, in particular, Ezekiel 38, that we've got this right. And we're just waiting for the final pieces of this jigsaw to be put into place, and then God will send his son back to the earth to set up his kingdom, which we're all waiting for. So let's just look for a few minutes at the military might and the capability of the Assyrians. Now, it's not so clear there, but it's a little bit clearer with the lights off. This, you may re well recognize, is the Lakish Room in the British Museum. And many of us will have seen this. Some of us will have seen this many, many times and be fascinated by it. We're just going to t look at a couple of little things on there. Um, and we'll do it with this quotation from a book which is published by the British Museum. And this is what he says, and it's absolutely true. If ever you go there, and I'm sure if you have been there, you will be impressed by the way in which there is so much that we see. So a casual glance at the Assyrian sculptures in the British Museum suggests that this was a state dedicated wholeheartedly to war. And we could look at lots of different reliefs, but just let's look at this one, the, the Siege of Lakeish. Difficult to see, I know, from down there, but you can see the ramps that they created here um, to put up against the city walls that they might take it. And in addition to um, the, uh, that, we'll see how well prepared and armed were the Assyrian soldiers. They were well-renowned for their um, capability of conquering lands. And also, they would have machinery. This would be the Assyrian tanks of old days. And this is like a battering ram here, and you can see the wheels on the bottom, and there would be someone here protecting the arrowmen um, from anything that would be thrown over from the walls uh, at, at, at these, these um, machines. And, and, and it's clear, I'm not going to go into this anymore, but it's very clear from what has been unearthed by archaeologists that definitely Assyria was a war machine. 
Now, every May the 9th, Russia parades its armies, its armaments, its aircraft in a parade in Moscow and other cities in Russia. The 9th of May is significant because it's the day in which Russia defeated Nazi Germany. And so they re remember that. And, and this is from this year's parade. I'm just going to just show you a couple of pictures there as to what you can, what you can see. In addition to their war machine, it is well noted how cruel the Assyrians were. And uh, again, a couple of quotations. Following a successful Assyrian military campaign, enemy leaders were displayed along the, alongside the spoils of war and publicly humiliated in victory parades. We've just seen, haven't we, that kind of victory parades um, that, that Russia um, continues to hold year after year after year before being viciously impaled, mutilated, disemboweled, or flayed alive. And that's from a book recently published by the British Museum, Masha by Naipaul, King of the World, King of Assyria. And another quotation, um, this is quoted in a, as a quotation from a particular book, in a book that I have. Um, I flayed all the chiefs who had revolted, and I cut the limbs of the officers, the royal officers who had rebelled, the rest of their warriors I consumed with thirst in the desert of the Euphrates. So a pretty nasty bunch of people, really, and there's some depictions of the cruelty meted out by the Assyrians, particularly in relation to those who rebelled against them. They were less vicious, much more kind uh, towards those who would go into captivity voluntarily. But anyone who rebelled, anyone who defied them, they would incur the wrath of the Assyrian kings. And you see there pictures of people being um, flayed alive, and also this person has had uh, been decapitated. So it's pretty horrific. Now, Russia has behaved in a way like that in the past. We can't ignore the fact that there are some people that say, who was worse? Was it Stalin or was it Hitler? Because he was a dictator of the uh, USSR from 29 to 53. Transformed the society, yes, but he did it by ruling by terror, and millions um, of his own citizens died during his brutal reign. He set up the, the death, uh, the, the, the camps, not the death camps, the labor camps, the gulag system. Um, and, and it is very well documented. And the last paragraph there, he did not mellow with age. He, he prosecuted a reign of terror, purges, executions, exiles to labor camps, and persecution in the post-war USSR. Suppressing all dissent and anything that smacked of foreign, especially Western influence. He established communist governments throughout Eastern Europe. So there was a huge amount of cruelty during his reign, and things probably aren't quite as bad now, but there's a lot of things that happen, are happening, and, and they are not good in the way in which they are ruled. Now, it's interesting also, against this background, to think about the political history of Assyria and the USSR. So, just very quickly, here's a, a map which shows the growth of the Assyrian Empire, because the Assyrians were keen on expanding their territory, expanding, expanding it all the time. And so, the colours that you see, this is the original, and then it goes in the lighter colours until you get to the, possibly the full extent here, of the Assyrian Empire. And here's another description. This is the reign of Isa Haddon. He came after Sennacherib. He's one of his sons, not one of the two sons that killed him, but he, he was another son who succeeded, and he went down into Egypt. So Sennacherib was around at the time of Hezekiah. Um, so that is 700-ish uh, BC. So what we've also got to remember, and I find this very interesting indeed, is... Assyria was not always continually expanding. It went through a period where the empire contracted. Now, this is quite interesting, really, because we're going to see an interesting parallel with what happens, uh, has happened in modern-day Russia. So the Assyrian empire was grand, and then it went into a period of decline, and it went into a period of decline after the rule of this monarch here. And this is the period... And in this book, which is uh, one a book that I've had a long time, Ancient Iraq, 
which talks about the, uh, the Assyrians, the Babylonians, and so on, and it goes right back to the time of Ab- Abraham. And this is a quote from there. It says, thus, for 36 years, and it gives the time, 781 to 745, Assyria was practically paralyzed. And during that time, the political geography of the Near East underwent several major changes and minor changes. Now, just as a complete aside, you just might want to note that during this period here, this period here, is the likely time that Jonah was called to go to Nineveh. And it helps us to understand, I think, why the Assyrians were ready to repent and to accept the preaching of Jonah. Um, They were not such a powerful force at that time. So, for 36 years, then, there was a period of... uh, immense decline in in Assyria. And and it was resurrected, as it were, by this man, Tiglath-Pileser III, who's mentioned a number of times in Scripture. And he's described as an intelligent and vigorous sovereign. He turned the lands he subdued into Assyrian possessions, reorganized the army, carried out the long-awaited administrative reform which gave Assyria the internal peace which it needed. From every point of view, Tiglath-Pileser must be considered the founder of the Assyrian Empire. So that's the Neo-Assyrian Empire. And it was a great power up until the time that it finally was overthrown. Um, So he is credited with doing that work. Now what is interesting is that when we think about Russia, and we think about Tsarist Russia and the Russian Revolution. Soon after that, we've got the formation of the Soviet Union. And it started off with six uh, states, and they are represented in the languages here around this symbol. And here's the symbol of um, the, the Russians, the hammer and the sickle. And you can see it's big on the world, isn't it? So their aim is to expand and to dominate the world. That's what their aim was. And there was some success in that, because by the time the Soviet Union collapsed on the 26th of December 1991, there were, there were not just six, but there were 15. And they're represented, you won't see this, but again, all the different languages. We've still got our hammer and sickle right on the... Uh, um, globe there and we're going to look at just a couple of um, things in, in, in this in a minute or two but you can see how Russia had expanded but it fell and it fell because it went into a decline and that's really what happened with Assyria Assyria went into a period of serious decline when according to that quotation of the historian Assyria was practically paralyzed for a period of 36 years I think that's very similar to what happened to the Soviet Union. There was a build-up to the decline, if that makes sense, and, and, and it, it fell apart in 1991. And it didn't start getting, uh, uh, building up itself again into a power until you've got this man that come, came to power, who is, as you know, Vladimir Putin, who was prime minister from this period of time, and then became president. He ruled for two terms, and he was prevented from ruling for another term by the constitution of the, of the Russian Federation. And so he then became prime minister, and the suggestion is that uh, Medvedev, who then was president at the time, that really uh, Putin was very much in control. If not, they, they made their decisions together. And then the constitution was changed, and it, it, it meant that the president's term would be extended from four years to six years. And Putin was then elected again. And fairly recently, he has been elected. And he will be there until May 2024, unless things start to happen, as we believe they might well do, before his uh, second term of this longer presidency ends. Now, the Assyrians were noted for being very powerful and autocratic rulers. And we've already seen that with with Stalin, haven't we? Lenin before him and and others that that followed. And in particular, we can see from in our current day that 
Vladimir Putin very much is in complete control of what happens in his, in his Russia. And that's recognized by, by the, the, the press, isn't it? These uh, pictures are a number of years apart, but they see him dressed up now as a czar. Um, a czar has someone who has complete control, and they see Putin in that position this, um, uh, as, a, as a, a one who has an immense amount of control. And so then there's this similarity yet again between the Assyrians of old, because the person in charge was very much the person in charge, and you wouldn't want to cross them at all. And I'm pretty sure that Putin doesn't like being crossed either. Now, there's a verse in Isaiah 33 which talks about the way in which Assyria in the past has dealt dishonestly. Um, we're not going to need to turn it up, but this is what it says. Woe to thee that spoilest, and thou hast not spoiled, and dealest treacherously, and they dealt not treacherously with thee. So what we're being told here is this power we believe is a Syria that is being addressed, they spoiled the nations that didn't spoil them. They dealt treacherously with the nations that behaved fairly with them. And for this, Isaiah pronounces judgment upon them. When thou shalt cease to spoil, thou shalt be spoiled. And when thou shalt make an end to deal treacherously, they shall deal treacherously with thee. And Isaiah is speaking at the time of the invasion of Assyria, destroying Israel and destroying a lot of Judah also. So there were wave after wave of Assyrian invasions in Israel and Judah. And time and time again, tribute was paid. We haven't got time to look at the scriptures that, that detail some of this. We look at a bit of it, but not all of them. And the purpose was, well, if we buy them off, then maybe they leave us alone. But the more that they were bought off, the more they seemed to come down and want more. And they dealt treacherously with Israel and with Judah. So let's just have a look at a couple of references now in relation to Ahaz. Ahaz um, was uh, one of Israel's, uh, Judah's worst kings, but nevertheless, we just want to look at how he was not treated well by the Assyrians. So in 2 Kings um, 16, and I just suddenly realized how difficult it must be for some of you to be able to look at your Bibles um, in the darkness there, but anyway, we'll, we'll read it to you. So 2 Kings 16, and reading from verse 6, um, at that time Rezin, king of Syria, recovered Elath to Syria and drave the Jews from Elath, and the Syrians came to Elath and dwell there to this day. Now Ahaz, king of Judah at the time, so Ahaz sent messengers to Tiglath-Pileser, king of Assyria. So we've already seen him. This is Tiglath-Pileser III, who was the one credited with building up the Assyrian Empire, saying, I am thy servant and thy son. Come up and save me out of the hand of Syria, out of the hand of the king of, Syria, king of Israel, which rise up against me. So reason and Apica, Apica was the king in Israel, had come against Judah, and Judah wanted Assyria to help them. So Ahaz, verse 8, took the silver and gold that was found in the house of the Lord and in the treasures of the king's house and sent it for a present to the king of Assyria. And the king of Assyria hearkened unto him, for the king of Assyria went up against Damascus and took it and carried the people of it captive to Kir and slew Rezin. So that's what happened on that occasion. But if we go to the Chronicles account, which is another account of the same event, but we've got a little bit more information there. So 2 Chronicles 28, and um, we'll look at verse 16. So verse 16, uh, 2 Chronicles 28, at that time did King Ahaz send unto him, send unto the kings of Assyria to help him. For again, the Edomites had come up. So the first thing we looked at in Kings had already happened. And now Ahaz is, is seeking further help. And if we just work our way down to verse um, 19, 
For the Lord brought Judah low because of Ahaz, king of Israel, for he made Judah naked and transgressed sore against the Lord. And Tilgath-Pilneser, king of Assyria, came unto him and distressed him, but strengthened him not. So, so this is the way in which the Assyrians of old behaved dishonestly, treacherously, with the kings of Israel and Judah. So we're going to look at um, the situation with Hezekiah, which is very, very similar. Um, we won't turn all of these references up. Hezekiah, king of Judah, reigned for 25 years. In the fourth year, Shalmaneser V lay siege to Samaria. Um, just before he takes it, I think Sargon um, it replaces him, and he's the one that takes Samaria. And this is in the early years, the first few years of the reign of King Hezekiah. In the 14th year, Sennacherib, now another king of Assyria, he comes down and invades Judah. And what Hezekiah does is he gives him, buys him off, as it were, which is what Ahaz did there. And then the Assyrians come back again in the same year. So let's just go to the, um, the uh, let's see, I haven't got the reference of the chapter here, but it's in um, 2 Kings 19, I think. 2 Kings 19. And what he's doing is he's seeking. He's seeking to get Hezekiah to, to, uh, to give in, as it were. And this is the dishonest speech by Rab Shaker, um, and he is saying in, um, in verse 23, I think maybe I haven't got the right chapter here, it's uh, probably in Chronicles. Um, anyway, we, we, the point is that Rab Shaker's speech, which I think we know so well, where he's encouraging the people to, to surrender, and he might take them to their own lands, he might take them to a, to, back to Assyria and give them vineyards and houses and so on. Um, thank you very much. Chapter 18, I was one chapter two, eight. Okay, thank you. Um, okay, so uh, we, we won't stop, stop to, to read it now, but um, this is what he says in verse 31. Hearken not to Hezekiah, for thus saith the king of Assyria, make an agreement with me by a present, and come out to me, and then eat ye every man of his own vine, and every one of his own fig tree, and drink ye every one the waters of his own cistern, and so on. Um, but Hezekiah, by this time, had realized that he may have made a bit of an error in, in buying off this king, because the very same year he comes down again and, and demands more. And Hezekiah has to now galvanize the people in Jerusalem. And he gives them a command and he says, answer him not. And they listened to Hezekiah. And because of his trust in, in the Almighty God, God delivered him from the hand of the kings of Assyria. How they are dishonest on Sennacherib's prism, which you may well be aware of, Hezekiah, um, Hezekiah is spoken of there by Sennacherib and he says how he shut him up like a caged bird in Jerusalem but he doesn't go on to describe the full picture that the Bible tells us how his army was completely destroyed and so their accounts are biased very biased towards the um, the Assyrians themselves now one interesting feature of Russia is as you saw from the pictures earlier of the um, Soviet Union before it had collapsed, how there were 15 republics joined together forming that union, and then it broke up. And that really has not particularly um, gone that well with Russia because they feel that they need to expand more. And, and it's very interesting to see how they've, how they've done this. They have um, what we might call the citizenship policies, paving the way to re regain control of Soviet space that was effectively given up when the Soviet Union was disbanded. Some of those republics are very close to Russia, others hate them. 
and some are very much in, in the middle. And this is Georgia, one of the republics. Small, fairly small, but uh, an, a, a very um, strategically placed. And, and this land here and this land here um, have been recognized by Russia now as independent sovereign states. And this, what it is, is Abkhazia, and this is South Ossetia. And what has happened in fairly recent times is Russia's gone in there and it has um, put its armies in there. There was a war, particularly in South Ossetia. And the reason why those two particular parts of Georgia have been targeted by, by the Russians is because there are Russian speakers there, predominantly Russian speakers. It's something that has happened in other places too. There's um, the uh, two bits uh, again, recognized as independent states on the border with Russia, disputed by Georgia, not recognized by most countries in the world, but, interest, but recognized by these countries. Nehru, Nicaragua, Russia, Syria, and Venezuela. Um, and, and Russia is happy to continue to, to go on um, recognizing them and ignoring the demands of the Georgians and, and others. Now, you know what happened in Crimea, don't you? And why Crimea? Because not only is it strategically important, but the majority of the people in Crimea are Russian speakers. And, and so there is a way in which Russia develops a process of trying to envelop these territories back under its control, and Crimea has been annexed as now as part of Russia. And now Russia is working in Ukraine here, in the east of Ukraine. So how does it do it? it, it first of all, it, it uh, tries to make the people uh, there, the Russian speakers, more Russianized by their propaganda, by them listening to uh, Russian radio programs and Russian television. And then what it does is it offers uh, passports to Russian speakers. And um, I've just jumped one slide too far ahead, I think. Um, I'll come back to that in a minute. What it does is it creates um, this policy of what's called passportization. So I'll come on to that in a second. And we'll now see how Russia is trying to get away with this. Now, you remember the war in Yugoslavia some time ago, and it broke up into various different republics. And one of the republics, not, it wasn't the, one of the ones originally that broke up, it was part of Serbia. But the Serbians didn't treat the Kosovans that well, and the Kosovans didn't like the Serbs, and so, they declared that they would become an independent state. And because the West is not so keen on Serbia, the West recognized Kosovo very, very quickly. And in a way, has created a bit of a problem because this is exactly now what Putin uses to justify his annexation of Crimea. This is the... United Nations Security Council chamber in New York. And it's interesting to think about how Russia behaves in that place. And we um, just remember the time when Russian spies uh, poisoned people in Salisbury in the United Kingdom a couple of years ago. And this is uh, the, the debate that took place. And Russia was saying, you know, the authorities of the United Kingdom are constantly trying to tarnish Russia. Well, maybe what the authorities are trying to do is to get to the right person who did the poisoning in the first place. And another quotation um, from the former member from um, the United, of the United States who said, we take no pleasure in having to constantly criticize Russia, but we need Russia to stop giving us so many reasons to do so. Now, what we're moving on to now is to think about the way in which Israel, because that's the country we're most interested in regarding what is going to happen in the future. What's happening there is quite remarkable. You saw how both Ahaz, a bad king, and Hezekiah, 
a very good king, cozied up to the Assyrians. It's, it's interesting to see the developments that are taking place at the moment. Now, this was the um, victory parade, not this year, but last year, and there were only two heads of state with Vladimir Putin. One of those was Benjamin Netanyahu. And he was there, standing by him, and along with the Serbian president, was going to lay flowers on the tomb of the unknown soldier. So he sat there, and he saw the troops filing by, the tanks rolling by, the armored vehicles rolling by. And he looked up and he would see the airplanes going overhead. Are these the very weapons, the very armies, that are going to be part of that confederacy which will come down upon the land of Israel, as Ezekiel 38 describes? The attitude in Israel is interesting at the present time because they are feeling more secure, feeling more at peace. So here's something from, if you can't read at the bottom, it's the Jerusalem Institute for Strategy and Security. And this said a number of things, which I think is worth repeating here. Since Syria's formation after the demise of the Ottoman Empire in 1923, the political entity that has had the longest possession of the Golan Heights is the State of Israel. And they've had that for 52 years, maybe 53 now. Moreover, Israel... Israeli public opinion regards the Golan Heights, a very beautiful region, as an integral part of the Jewish state. Most Israelis have consistently viewed the Golan Heights to be a non-negotiable property, and a large majority of Israeli public strongly oppose any withdrawal from the Golan. The Golan Plateau consists the best defense against potential aggression from Syria. It adds to Israel's deterrence. Designing borders in accordance with current but changing military technology and with transient political circumstances is strategically foolish. The political uncertainty in the region, including the rise of Iran, its military presence in Syria, only reinforces Israel's need for defensible borders. But just a little bit more. Um, it's not disputed, that top paragraph says, um, by Syria because there's no peace agreement with Syria, and even Arabs recognize that. And then it talk, talks about the past that if, in, in the international law, if you conquer a territory but you weren't the aggressor, then you're entitled to stay in that territory. And it points out that Syria, which opened fire on Israel without provocation in the 67 war, was the aggressor. So lastly, the UN Security Council Resolution 242 from November 67, the reference point for all peacemaking diplomatic efforts in the Arab-Israeli conflict postulates the need for the protagonists for secure and recognizable borders indicating that security needs are an acceptable criterion for designing the borders between Israel and its neighbors. In other words, Israel is not going to give up the Golan Heights at all because it sees that as part of the peace. Now, you also are aware, so there's the Golan Heights here. You're also aware of Russia's presence in Syria, which is most interesting, and the bases that they have there. Now, Earlier this year, I was privileged enough to be in the land of Israel on a Christadelphian tour, and we went up to Mount Bet Bental and on the Golan Heights and overlooked Syria. And that's the view that we had. And this is Mount Bental over here, so it's looking directly into Syria, and you could, might be just about able to see Mount Hermon on, on the side there. A tremendous view. I expected to be so many soldiers there. There's no soldiers there at all. Um, and it looks like as if Israel is quite calm about the situation there. Um, and whilst uh, there with another map that just shows the location looking at it the other way. So north is that way now. And you can see that um, Damascus is only 66 kilometers away from the top of Mount Bental. Now, we had an Israeli guide on this occasion, and I asked him when we were on Mount Bental, and I got a minute when he was not with anybody, anyone else, and I asked him, um, what do you think about the uh, position of Russia being lodged in Syria? Do you see that as, as a threat? Are you worried about it? 
And he said, well, we are worried about it. But, he said, we are more worried about the Iranian presence there. And I said, I can well understand that that is a more immediate concern and you understand that at all. And, and, and I understand that very well. And, and, and then he went on to say, actually, he said, do you know, we're getting on really well with Russia at the moment. That was an amazing comment to me um, because that's exactly what um, we're expecting, aren't we? We're expecting Israel to be sucked in, as it were, to this treacherous dealer, if it's to be like Assyria of old, and when they are so unsuspecting, then the power of the north will come down, as Ezekiel 38 describes. This is this month. Netanyahu, yet again, in Russia, meeting President um, Putin. This month. And now, what did they talk about? Well, this is very interesting also. The Kremlin, Kremlin has an interest in who wins Israelis, uh, Israel's parliamentary election next week. This is what um, Putin said. And he noted, and this I think is particularly interesting in the view that we uh, had earlier about passportization, Putin noted that 1.5 million immigrants from former, the former Soviet republics now live in Israel. Now, that's a considerable proportion of the population of Israel. It is very, very significant. And I believe it could be one of the motives that brings Putin down from the north. We always consider them our people, compatriots. And, of course, we are not indifferent to what kind of people will come into the Israeli parliament. So that's amazing, isn't it? He considers these people, the Russian speakers, as our people, compatriots. Netanyahu said, coordination with Russia's military was important because of the presence of Russian forces in Syria. Over the past month, we've seen a stark increase in Iran's attempts to use the territory of Syria to attack us. So it doesn't really need and want to give up the Golan Heights. And then they said this. What does it say, of course, in Ezekiel about peace and safety? The bond between Moscow and Jerusalem had prevented unnecessary and dangerous friction between their countries. And I can say without reservation that it is a fundamental component of regional stability. Dwelling safely without walls and bars and gates at rest. We, we, we know there's a number of references in Ezekiel 38 to that situation, which is not fully there yet, but you can see how the signs are pointing towards this. Now, Ezekiel 38, there's also this verse. Thus saith the Lord God, it shall come to pass at the same time shall things come into thy mind and thou shalt think an evil thought. I think we've probably been able to see that Israel is not so concerned at the moment. Certainly the politicians are not, and maybe many of the citizens, with Russia being a threat. It's already got peace to the south with Egypt and peace to the east with Jordan, and now partly to the north. And I wouldn't be at all surprised if Russia becomes the guarantor of peace on the whole of Israel's northern border. I will not be a little bit surprised about that at all. So Israel can relax even more. And so they're wanting to build closer ties with Russia so that Israel then can be more in a condition with them that rest and dwell safely, all of them dwelling without walls, having neither bars nor gates. That the Russian naval, air and land bases exist in Syria and are expanding. So that's the king of the north in position, isn't it? who will come like a whirlwind and with many ships. We're getting closer and closer and closer to that day when the invasion of the land will come. And the Lord Jesus Christ will be here for us before that happens. I'm sure of that. There are 1.5 million Russian-speaking Israelis. You know, it says in the prophecy of Zechariah, doesn't it, that half of the city shall go into captivity. 
And it kind of dawned on me recently what may be the outworking of that scenario and, and the reason for it happening. And it is, of course, that a lot of these Russians who have come down from Russia and the other former Soviet republics are very clever and intelligent people and have contributed immensely to the wealth of the Israeli nation at present. And Putin says, we always see these as our people, our compatriots, and he's been giving out passports to people in Ukraine very, very recently. Is it that when Zechariah says that when the invasion comes down in Jerusalem, that half of the city shall go into captivity, is it the Russians being taken back to Russia where Putin may well want them? His term of office ends in 2024. Now, how much time have we got left, my dear brothers and sisters? If he is the one to bring about this invasion of the land of Israel. It's, it's so interesting to draw the comparison between the Assyrians of old and Russia of, of now. And so as we see the, um, the, 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 the development of events, as we see these taking place, we are reminded of this verse, which is in Isaiah chapter 10, that there is going to come a time when... Israel will turn to God and they will turn to God through the Lord Jesus Christ and only through the Lord Jesus Christ will he accept them before that there's to be so much pain this verse tells us that it shall come to pass in that day that the remnant of Israel so you think what devastation must be there which will take place in, in Israel the Israel that we see today in order for this situation to happen, that there will be just a remnant. Two-thirds of those in the land will be cut off and die, we're told, aren't we? Such as are escaped of the house of Jacob shall no more stay upon him that smote them. So they won't be putting their trust in princes anymore, in the Tsar of Russia, in Putin, or anyone else for that matter. But they will stay then upon the Lord, the Holy One of Israel in truth, because they will have been rescued by the Lord Jesus Christ when he will come and show them the wounds in his hands and in his feet. And they will then realize that the one their fathers put to death was their Messiah. And he's the one that has saved them, and he's the one that will exalt them and reign on the throne of his father David in righteousness. We long for that day to come. May it come so soon. The signs that we see now, I believe, are exciting as well as interesting because we are nearer and nearer and nearer to that wonderful day when the Lord will come and will seek us to be with him.